Good evening. Uh, nice uh, stormy, wet night. Good to be out tonight, though. I appreciate you being here as we continue uh, going through this, this series of lessons. We're in lesson number 72 tonight, and uh, Eddie's passing out uh, the, the curriculum if you want a copy of that. Or you can just go ahead and follow along in the Bible. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 22. And then we're going to jump over into the book of John, chapter 10, and look at some events there. So we are uh, about to transition into what uh, some uh, Bible scholars refer to as the Perean ministry. Uh, You know, obviously we've been through some of the Galean ministries, or, uh, you know, if uh, we look at uh, the map up here, if I can figure out which button is, uh, Galilee, again, is up into the north of Palestine. Uh, right in the middle is Samaria, where not much action goes on. Some does, but not much. And then there's Judea down at the bottom. And so we've often referred to these Galilean ministries or the Judean ministries that Jesus uh, spends time in. But uh, we are going to be moving towards, not necessarily tonight, but uh, starting Sunday morning, we'll get into some of those lessons where Jesus comes over into this area on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, often referred to as Perea. And so that's why a lot of, again, a lot of uh, curriculum refers to this as the Perean ministry. And so he's going to go on to the east side of the Jordan and do some teaching uh, over there. And so we'll we'll talk about that here in a moment. But as we... uh, studied Sunday morning, we looked at a, a lesson on uh, repentance, uh, and especially uh, Jesus focusing in that parable of the fig tree. Uh, if, you're, if you recall, uh, Christ began by, uh, in Luke, at the end of Luke chapter 12, discussing division. Uh, but the division that he was referring to uh, was the division, the, the division that his ministry would bring about, right? Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? He, he preaches peace. He wants peace. He wants people to be in peace. But he also knows that uh, his teaching is going to cause division. Uh, there are going to be those, of course, who are going to accept his teaching, and there are going to be those who are not going to accept his teaching. And again, this isn't, uh, this isn't a, you know, a Pepsi, Coke type of discussion, right? This is... Uh, Either we're going to follow him and let him, uh, you know, uh, mold our, and shape our lives and our, we're going to obey him or either we don't. Right? Again, this isn't something as, as uh, you know, easy, easy as picking Pepsi versus Coke, but this is something much more. Uh, you have um, the Lord and Savior uh, requiring, you, requiring stuff of you versus uh, those who are not going to uh, pay attention. And of course, this is going to bring divisions. Uh, that's one of the, the loving thing about God's nature. We didn't really talk about this on Sunday morning, but you know, part of God's nature, uh, being a loving God, is that he allows us to make our own choices in this life. Right? We, we have free will to make our choices. He doesn't pre-program us as, as robots and to tell us that we have to do such and such. He allows us to make those choices. Right. And so consequently, though, as he described in that section, you know, it's going to divide families. Right. Three verse two, two verse three, mom versus daughter, son versus father, mother-in-law versus daughter-in-law are going to be divided over Jesus. And uh, 
So we looked at that. Then we also jumped into chapter 13 where he talked about repentance, the, uh, the uh, importance of it. Remember, he started talking about Pilate and how it was reported to him, how he had mixed the, the Galeans' blood with their sacrifices. And so people started to think, well, you know, those, are, those, those guys must have been pretty bad sinners to have that happen to them. And then, somebody, and then Jesus also brings up the, the Tower of Siloam that fell uh, and killed those 18 people. Again, were they greater sinners than all the men in Jerusalem, you know, Jesus brought up. And, and twice in that passage he said, you know, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he gave, again, that, that parable of the fig tree, uh, where the, the, the owner of the vineyard plants a fig tree. Uh, after about three years, he goes and checks on it. It's still not producing anything. Uh, he wants to cut it down. But of course, the, the vine dresser, uh, the person in charge of taking care of it, says, please give it one more year. Um, if it doesn't, if nothing produces on it after that year, then we'll cut it down. But, but please, you know, give it one more year. And uh, we, we understand from that parable that, you know, God is long-suffering. Right? God, God is patient, but his patience will wear out. And we also spend a lot of time talking about the idea of repentance and that it's not simply uh, just a, a being sorry. It's not simply just changing uh, our minds about something. And it's not simply, um, you know, again, feeling sorry for ourselves, but it's feeling, feeling a, a godly sorrow and changing uh, for the right reasons, changing because of godly reasons. And it's hard to do. We pointed that out. It's hard to do. It's probably one of the hardest things to do in life is to acknowledge uh, the sin in our lives and to change and, and not just change uh, because, um, you know, somebody told us to, but to change because it pricks our heart. It, it cuts our heart. It pierces our heart. And it causes us to understand that uh, that's contrary to God's law. Uh, our sin, you know, placed Jesus on the cross. And so because of that, we want to change. And so that was the lesson Sunday morning. Uh, we'll continue on here in Luke chapter 13, again in verse 10 through uh, 21, and then we'll jump over into John, and we're going to notice a con uh, Jesus continuing his thoughts here. So uh, let's kind of remember where we are in this transition. Uh, again, we are within the final six months of the life of Jesus, although we still have quite a ways to go. We still have a lot of material to go. He's going to spend, of course, his last couple months in Judea, uh, again in that southern region on the map there. But uh, he's going to go over into Perea, as we've already mentioned. Maybe that word is not, um, you know, maybe it's not clicking with you. Uh, you know, maybe you're like, I've never read that uh, word uh, in Scripture before, and you haven't. Uh, the, the term or the name Perea is never mentioned in the Scripture, but it's often referenced as uh, the place across the Jordan or beyond the Jordan. Uh, there, there's a couple of different um, passages that point this out. Uh, we'll see one here in a moment in John chapter 10, uh, verse 40, that says that he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. So that's in reference, again, to uh, this area on the map up here of Perea, where Jesus is heading towards there. And that's where we're going to see really the next few uh, lessons. Uh, but if you remember your Old Testament well, if you remember the book of Joshua, as they are 
you know, as the Israelites, of course, spent, you know, that 40 years in the wilderness down here, and they're making their way up here uh, to cross over the Jordan to get into uh, Jericho. Uh, you remember what happens over here right before they cross over the Jordan? Specifically about two and a half tribes. Yeah, so there, there were uh, two, and we call it two and a half tribes, Gad, uh, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh. When they're in this section of land, they're like, hey, this land's pretty good, right? Why, why should we go over into uh, Israel and take the land of Canaan if this land here is good enough for all of our livestock? And so uh, they basically negotiate with uh, Moses at that part and say, hey, you know, if we stay here, you know, uh, Moses says, that's fine. You can stay here, but you're going to have to go in to the land of Canaan, your armies, and you're going to have to fight alongside your brothers, the other nine and a half tribes, of course. And um, you're going to have to go through all those battles with them. But after it's complete, after we take the land, you guys can you know, you can come back over here east of the Jordan and you can have that land. And so those are those two and a half tribes. Uh, again, that's this area that we're talking about. So, uh, again, Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Uh, we also know this is where John the Baptist did a lot of his teaching and preaching. Uh, he worked here. And, uh, you know, we've mentioned this before in other uh, classes uh, earlier. But remember, uh, when the Jews... We're going from, you know, the, this Judea area, Jerusalem, uh, from Galilee or to Galilee. Remember, did they want to go through Samaria? No. no, they didn't want to go through Samaria. So what they normally did was go uh, cross over the Jordan and go around Samaria to get from one end to the other. And so uh, going through Perea was uh, part of that uh, travel route. To again to go around Samaria because the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. So again, you know we've never really um, you know spent much time in this area so far in the life of Jesus, but uh, we have seen from time to time him traveling through uh, Perea, and so uh, he's going to spend quite some time here. Uh, and again, we'll talk about those uh, as we continue forward in these lessons. But before we get there, before we get to that lesson Sunday morning, before we get into this region of Perea, let's look at uh, a couple of events that happen in the life of Christ uh, before we get there. And so we'll begin in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Uh, we're going to notice one of these reoccurring events in uh, the ministry of Jesus, one of these things that's happened uh, before. And so let's, let's notice this. So Luke records, Luke 13, starting in verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. 
So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water, to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said this, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So we, we see in Jesus' ministry a lot, you know, he goes from uh, teaching to healing, from teaching to healing, from teaching to healing. And so we've uh, really the past couple lessons have been focusing on Jesus' teaching. But here again is another uh, instance of him healing uh, an individual. You know, he just got done teaching. Now here comes this miracle. Again, when we talk about miracles, especially in Jesus's ministry, again, we often have to, you know, remind ourselves what was the purpose of miracles? All right, to underscore his deity, to uh, assert that what he has to say is, uh, is from God, right? Uh, the purpose of miracles was to confirm the word. And, and he never did them to show off or anything like that, but he always did them to confirm uh, what he had said. And so here we have uh, another one. This is actually the fifth one that we've been to already of Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. And this, of course, does not make the Pharisees uh, happy that they do this. Uh, I don't ex necessarily expect us all to remember all four of those accounts, but if we want to think back, the, the first time we saw this was uh, when Jesus healed the crippled man by the pool of Siloam. Uh, you remember this? There's the, this pool and uh, the waters start to stir up, and whenever the waters start to stir up, you know, whoever was the first one to get into that pool would have been healed with whatever um, problem they had. And this was the, the first time that Jesus healed on the Sabbath was in that event. Uh, then there was the account where he and his apostles were walking through the grain fields. And remember, they were plucking the heads of grain and, you know, basically, you know, grinding them in their fingers. And the Pharisees got on to them about doing that. Uh, they were apparently were working on the Sabbath by doing that, by uh, you know eating the, that that wheat. And then there was the healing of the man's withered hand in the synagogue. Again, another event that happened on the Sabbath. And then recently we looked in John chapter nine about the man born blind. Remember the man born blind that happened as well on the Sabbath day. And so uh, this one's going to be no different than the others. You know. I, do you think Jesus uh, performs these miracles on the Sabbath for a reason? This isn't a coincidence, do you think? No, he showed that you do good works all the time and they become too rigid in their own laws. All right. That's supposed to do good any time it prevents itself. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of these happen on the Sabbath day. You know, these are opportunities for Jesus to, to teach, especially uh, the Pharisees who have this twisted, again, idea about keeping the Sabbath holy and, again, binding their man-made laws on the people 
uh, to not work on the Sabbath. But that was never the intention of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest. But they went overboard and made these man-made rules about the Sabbath day uh, and really you know, piled on all these extra uh, things to, and hold the people down. And again, you know, I, I've mentioned before, but man, you know, what, uh, what a scary thing to live in that environment of, oh man, what if somebody catches me accidentally working on the Sabbath day? Yeah. Well, uh, we can kind of go the other way now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, and so uh, here we go. Here, here's another instance, right? We have this woman who for 18 years, uh, the Bible tells us she has had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent double, couldn't straighten herself up. Have you ever had back problems that severe? But for 18 years, 18 years not able to get up, uh, being bent over, but in a matter of moments, Jesus heals her of this, right? It, now, uh, maybe not spending too much time in this, uh, but again, um, you know, Jesus, Luke just basically tells us that Jesus heals her of this. Uh, he doesn't really necessarily um, tell us that maybe faith was involved in this healing, uh, as sometimes he does uh, in, other, in other places. But if we look, or let's look at that one, let's look at that verse again uh, in verse 14, because um, sort of at the end of verse 14, the, that synagogue official there said, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed. So at first, I, when I was studying this passage, I was thinking, you know, we don't really see faith involved. We really don't see uh, you know, maybe Jesus just picked her out of the crowd and healed her uh, because it was an opportune time. But uh, the more I studied it, and especially that passage there in passage 14, it appears that maybe she was there at the synagogue because uh, she knew Jesus was there. And so uh, maybe there was that faith involved that she heard that Jesus was in town, Jesus was going to be at the synagogue, and so uh, she had maybe someone help her get to the synagogue. And, and of course, Jesus picks her out. Uh, he heals her there miraculously, and uh, because of that, she glorifies God. And, uh, but of course, what's the, the religious leaders? What is the Jews' reaction? They're, yeah, they're, well, yeah the, the passage, or my translation says they're indignant, but, you know, they're furious. They're mad because they're not happy for this woman who... For 18 long years, was bent over, couldn't move. Uh, they're not excited, happy for her, as they should be, uh, but they're mad at Jesus, right? That he, had, he healed on the Sabbath. There's six days of the work, they said. You know, do those works on those days, but not on the Sabbath day. And again, there's no sympathy for this woman at all. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes you, you, know, you just, oh, you get upset with the, these Pharisees that you're reading Scripture. Uh, you know, where's the sympathy? Where's their heart? But Jesus responds to them there again in verse uh, 15. You know, he's got to come back here because we, we saw him answer uh, this question earlier uh, back in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, saying, you know, if one of you had a sheep and it fell into a pit, you know, wouldn't you go down and, you know, help get it out of there? 
Well, that's working, right? And if that happened on the Sabbath, you'd do that. And he does that again here in this instance, uh, using a different example. But he says uh, again here um, that, you know, if you, you have an ox or you have a donkey and you're going to untie it from its stall and lead it to water on the Sabbath day, right? Because oxes and donkeys need water. Is that not work? And, you know, that's what Jesus is trying to get through with them. You're working on the Sabbath day. You're concerned about your animals. You're leading them to water. Yet here is a daughter of Abraham. Right? She is one of your sisters by you know, Jewish descent. And she's been bent over, unable to move for 18 years. And you're, just, you're not focusing on the right thing. And uh, they're humiliated because of that, verse 17 says. The people are rejoicing. The entire crowd's rejoicing. But his opponents are being humiliated. You know, you got two groups here, right? You got those, uh, the crowd, and you've got the, the, the Pharisees. And again, there's a different reaction to both of them. And so, um, so there is uh, one of those stories. Uh, you know, who, who really is bent all out of shape in this account? Figuratively speaking. It's the Pharisees, right? And so, um, so let's continue. Uh, verses 18 through 21 uh, says, So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? Is it like a mustard seed, or excuse me, it is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden and grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So uh, Jesus, you know, again, here, here he's switching gears. He performs a miracle, and now he gets back on that teaching aspect, and he's uh, teaching about the kingdom, the coming kingdom. And have we heard these parables before already? Yeah, the, these are a couple of parables that Jesus already used back in Matthew 13. And so uh, we're not going to spend too much time on these tonight. Uh, but again, he's, he's used these as um, examples before. Uh, again, that mustard seed, right? That, that very small seed. They would have considered it the smallest seed that they would have known at that time in that culture. And it begins small, but it's going to grow to be a, you know, a great tree, right? And so uh, that's what the kingdom of God is like, uh, the kingdom. You know, what's the kingdom often uh, in reference to in Scripture? Church. The church, right? And so uh, the church, it's going to start off as a small thing, but it's going to explode into this big thing. Uh, we see that in Acts chapter 2, don't we? Uh, 3,000 that day uh, were added to the church. And then as you continue on through the book of Acts, especially in those first few chapters, you know, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It starts to spread out moreover. And again, he uses, the influ or he uses the example of leaven, which again, um, that, that yeast uh, in bread that's going to, have, that's going to influence the, all the bread. You put a little bit of that yeast in, that leaven in, and it's going to expand. And again, um, something that looks modest and insignificant is going to have great results. And so, again, we, we've heard these parables before. Uh, 
a few months ago, so uh, we're not going to spend too much time on here. But uh, again, uh, Jesus is using this opportunity again to teach those great truths uh, to the people. You know, this is a new audience that's going to hear these lessons. So, of course, um, he's going to use them. And so uh, let's, uh, for the final few minutes of class, now focus in on John chapter 10. Uh, John chapter 10 is going to have one more account uh, again, before he moves in to this uh, section east of the Jordan River. And this is, uh, we were in John chapter 10 oh, a couple of weeks ago when uh, we were noticing uh, Jesus talking about, you know, I am the, uh, I am the door and I am the, the good shepherd. And so uh, starting in verse 22 sort of starts a new section in John chapter 10. And it says, at the time of the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Um, I like these things in Scripture that are sort of like these, uh, oh, they call them, you know, like time markers. Uh, they kind of help us pinpoint, especially when we're doing this study of the chronology of the life of Jesus. Uh, these are important because they, you know, they help us kind of pinpoint, uh, you know, what time of year this would would have been. And so uh, he tells us right here that this is the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. He says it's in winter time, and so you know we've got a good uh, idea of when this was, when this has taken place, and this was a Jewish feast that was instituted uh, by the Jews. Now this isn't one of those things that God commanded, like the Passover or the Pentecost, or the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember those three major ones where the people came to Jerusalem? But this was a feast that the people sort of came up with during uh, the intertestamental period. So uh, between the Old Testament and New Testament, there's about 400 years where God sends no prophets, uh, God's word's not being uh, communicated. And uh, during this time, uh, there's, uh, you know, we have to look at uh, secular history or Jewish history to kind of understand what's going on during this time. And there was, you know, there was, um, well, not to get in, we don't have the time to go into all the, the history of the Jews at that time, but let's just say there was some uh, not good feelings uh, between the Jews and uh, the, the Roman government who's starting to come into control. There's this man by the name of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who he's desecrating the temple of the Jews. You know, he's bringing uh, a pig into the temple and sacrificing it there. And of course, you know, to do that was quite a slap in the face of the Jews because it was a pig, right? A pig was unclean to them. And uh, he, there was great animosity between uh, the two groups. And there was a revolt that was led by uh, this man by the name of Maccabees. Maybe that's a name you've heard uh, thrown around a while. And uh, this Maccabean result uh, resulted in the Jews winning in this instance. And anyways, I say all that because this feast, this feast of the dedication took place or originated uh, because of that uh, revolt. It commemorates uh, this, uh, uh, the rededication of the temple after it had been defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes. But here's the, here's the catch. We know this festival by a different name today. Uh, what's probably the most famous Jewish holiday that we can think of? Hanukkah, right? That's this event. Uh, does that help us when it says in verse 23 that it was wintertime? Right? And, uh, 
And so this is what we refer to as Hanukkah. And uh, so that was this festival here that, that was happening. And so, again, this was, you know, a, a prominent festival within the Jewish religion. And so that's, that's where we're at here. Again, it's around the wintertime. And let's look at verses 24 through 26. It says, The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You know, the enemies of Jesus, tell us plainly. You know, who are you? Tell us plainly. Uh, you know, publicly, we've seen from time to time that Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, probably, that's probably the, the description that he used the most, uh, the Son of Man. Uh, the Samaritan woman, you remember all the way back in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, you know, he did sort of come out and tell her that, you know, he was the Christ, right? And we know that privately he told the disciples that he was the Christ, but has Jesus ever publicly made the confession to people that he was the Christ? Yeah, he hasn't done that to this point yet, right? Uh, he knows what's going to happen uh, if he does that, uh, but he hasn't done that yet. But they are, they're begging him, please tell us plainly, who are you? Um, do they really want to know who he is? Or again, is this another trap, another setup? Yeah, it, it, it's another trap, right? Because they know that if... Uh, he says, yes, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, then they're going to accuse him of blasphemy, right? Because they, again, they think he's just a human. He's just simply a human. He's not the Son of God. And so if they can get him to admit that he is the Christ, then they're going to um, accuse him of blasphemy. And that's exactly what they do uh, when he gets back into Jerusalem for the, during the trials that he's going to go through. Uh, they're going to make him answer these questions under oath. And, and because of that, they're going to uh, condemn him of blasphemy, of, of you know, referring to him as the Christ. Uh, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given, me, given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the Father are one. Uh, let's just go ahead and read the final verses because we've got about five minutes left. So verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Okay, so I know that was a lot. Uh, 
But we just let's just emphasize a couple of key points uh, in this verse. Um, back in verses uh, 27 through 29, you know, Jesus is using that analogy of the sheep again. And he mentions here, um, you know, that no one can snatch them out of my hand. A lot of people use that verse as a um, as a proof text that uh, you ever heard of, you know, uh, once saved, always saved. You know, the idea that once you become a Christian, you can never fall from grace. We're familiar with that teaching. And uh, a lot of people use that verse to say, see, Jesus said that, you know, once you become a Christian, uh, no one can ever snatch you away. Um, but that's, that, of course, is very much contrary to what the scriptures teach. Right? That, that, uh, and I, I'm going to save my, a lot of my comments for Sunday morning because uh, part of the sermon I'm going to preach Sunday morning is going to talk about this idea of once saved, always saved. Uh, but... Again, the, the scriptures uh, definitely teach otherwise that, you know, when you become a Christian, you can fall away. Uh, it, it, it comes up over and over again. You think of the sheep in the sheepfold, right? Can a sheep still get out of a sheepfold? It can, right? And so, um, so again, you know, I'll, I'll save my comments to that Sunday morning. Uh, but again, I know a lot of people will use that verse to sort of uh, prove uh, their point. But, uh, you know, Jesus, of course, he, that's not what he's talking about uh, in that instance anyways. He's not talking about uh, eternal salvation. But he's talking about uh, their, their relationship there. And, uh, and so we'll save those comments uh, for Sunday morning. But uh, let's uh, focus. I want to talk about uh, one more aspect that, you know, I really had to kind of uh, think through a little bit, but remember, uh, the Jews say they're, they're picking up stones, they're ready to stone Jesus, and uh, they're accusing him of blasphemy, of referring to himself as God, and Jesus goes back into the Psalms, uh, in particular Psalm 82, verse 6, and he quotes the Psalm that says, well, let's turn there real quick, uh, Psalm 82, verse 6. Psalm 82, verse 6 reads, uh, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. And, of course, we don't have time to dig through the context of the psalm, but he's referring to human beings here. Uh, if you notice, the, the word gods is in lowercase. He's not talking about deity, uh, but he's, he calls humans, he calls some of the Jewish people gods and sons of the Most High. So Jesus takes that verse into the New Testament and says, uh, you're, call, you're accusing me of blasphemy, of referring to myself as God, but even in the Psalms, even in your law, you know, the Old Testament, uh, you refer to people, uh, humans, as gods. Uh, you know, again, little g, but, um, or sons of the Most High. So how can it be blasphemous for me to call myself the Son of God when God himself called uh, you guys, or humans, gods. And, uh, you know, again, here's uh, Jesus uh, refuting uh, their uh, accusation of blasphemy. 
Okay, I, I know that last section was quite a bit, uh, but we'll pick up Sunday morning in uh, Luke 13, verses 22 through 35, as we begin his ministry in this area of Perea. So looking forward to that.